Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I am Corey Olson, and uh, back with you here again today. So I think um, this week, uh, <laughs> by the way, for those of you who are uh, with me on Twitter, it looks like it's kind of working again. I still apologize to the people on Twitter because I still have to, like, I'm getting your comments rotated 90 degrees, so I can't really read them super well, but I'll give it a shot. Um, anyway, so my apologies for that. Uh, thanks for bearing with me. So welcome back. Exciting to be back. I know I was here last week, so I wasn't really gone any time, but I've like been to the Netherlands and back, so that was, it feels like a long week in between. Uh, so that was uh, great fun. Nadermoot was awesome. Had such a good time there. Really fun being in the, in the Netherlands. Uh, I got to... Um, learn how to uh, pronounce Dutch. I can't say I really learned to speak much Dutch. My vocabulary is still fairly limited uh, because really almost the only words I learned, apart from words that I saw on street signs, were words from the Hobbit poems uh, and the Ring poems. I Basically, that's how I was teaching myself vocabulary. We were in a Tolkien uh, bookstore, and so I was looking at copies of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in Dutch. And uh, so I was I was uh, reading through the riddles in the riddle game in Dutch to teach myself vocabulary. And then I was looking at a couple poems in uh, The Lord of the Rings. In particular, we were looking at the Aragorn poem, um, you know, the All That Is Gold Is Not Glitter poem, and then the Ring verse. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, in the land of Mordor where the swimming's fine. Um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, <laughs> that's, sorry, that was my mispronunciation, which led to comedy. Um, uh, it's just really where the shadows are, but, uh, it, I made it sound like where the swimming's fine and everyone thought that was pretty funny. Anyhow, uh, so we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're back again. Thanks to everybody who came, uh, to Nadermoot. Really great to meet people. Saw some, uh, some awesome folks from, um, uh, from last year who were at, at London Moot last year. Uh, and, uh, and some, uh, you know, some, some new people, uh, uh, for, you know, this year, uh, was really great that, uh, both uh, Unquendor, the Dutch Tolkien Society, and uh, the University uh, of Leiden um, were that that were, were both great hosts, and uh, you know I really appreciated them being there, you know having us, welcoming us there, and and uh, uh, and being there with us. It was really it was really cool. So anyway, um, that was. That was that was really fun. Looking forward to Mythmoot, which is of course our next moot and the big moot. That is of course the end of June, June twenty seventh through the thirtieth. So I hope that I know that many of you will be coming uh, to that. I really look forward to hanging out with you there, getting some a little bit more time uh, to spend together at Mythmoot, um, which is always so much fun. Um, and just a quick reminder: so this week is going to be the my last week of regular broadcasts. Next week I'll be away uh, all week with my family vacation week. Next week, uh, so uh, we will be out of town, out of the country. Actually, we're going to Iceland, uh, uh, which is cool. We've never been to Iceland before, so uh, we're gonna we're going up to Iceland. Uh, looking forward to that. I'm going to be driving around Iceland, uh, uh, which is going to be exciting. Um, but I won't be broadcasting, <laughs> so that's not going to happen. Uh, anyhow, um, so I will, um, 
Uh, so I won't see you next week, but regular broadcasts this week, including uh, Silm Film and Grifflet on Friday, and of course uh, the penultimate, probably section uh, or a session on uh, Mallory's Mort Arthur this coming uh, Wednesday which would be tomorrow. Um, and uh, and I also wanted to mention the Mythgard Movie Club is happening this coming Thursday, this coming Thursday at, I believe, 8.30 Eastern Time. Um, uh, uh, and I'm completely blanking on the film that they're discussing. Sorry, that just completely slipped my head. Uh, but anyway, it's going to be it's going to be fun, whatever it is. Uh, st- oh, wait. Oh, um, oh, I almost remembered. Then I forgot it again. Oh, well. Um, Captive State! Oh, God, I remembered. Okay, it came back. Captive State. Um, That's the film they're going to be discussing uh, this week. Okay, so, lots of fun stuff happening this week. Don't forget about Myth Moot. It's coming up fairly soon. All right, well, tonight... Uh, tonight we are getting to a metaphysics discussion that a lot of people have been wanting to have. Uh, we've Oh, sorry. Tony, great question. Tony is asking, when is Sauron Defeated happening? Answer is soon. We're going to begin our discussion of Sauron Defeated on the 15th of May. May 15th is going to be week one of Sauron Defeated. The only question is whether we're going to have a week off in between. Uh, which will all depend on whether or not I can get through all of the, the rest of Maori uh, tomorrow night. Uh, and if we can do that, then when I come back from my family vacation, uh, May 1st uh, will be the Wednesday after that. And that will be, we're going to do a session where we talk about Monty Python and the Holy Grail at the, after we've discussed, uh, after we've completed Maori. Um so uh, that'll either happen then or if I don't get through the whole Maori text and we need one more week for that, we'll push that back to the 8th and we'll do the final text discussion on the 1st. But in either case, we're going to start Sauron Defeated on the 15th. So anyhow, there we are. Um, uh, and yes, James, the uh, remaining Maori recordings are going to go up on the podcast feed. Those are all set and will be... We're doing some maintenance on our podcast feeds and stuff please bear with us on the podcast feed question uh we're working on that um uh but um yeah oh yes and thank you Sharon, for reminding me um we're the next Mythgard movie club uh the, the one's gonna be happening in may is gonna be on uh the film camelot so uh, we're gonna talk about an arthurian film uh after we uh finish mallory so that's gonna be a lot of fun okay anyway uh, uh, so things that, those are things that are happening again. Yes. Yeah, Sauron defeated coming up, uh, uh, in the middle of May, it is time to do another book after this week is going to be session 34. We're going to have 35 or 36 sessions total, uh, in the Maori class, uh, which has been awesome. It has been a, a, a walk through the complete Mort d'Arthur, like I've always wanted to do my whole life. So that's been great. Um, but um, anyway, so we're but, but we're almost done, and time to get back to the history of Middle Earth, which is good because as much as I've loved doing the Maori class, I'm I'm, I'm starting to pine a little bit uh, because we it's been a long time now, right? And uh, I want to do Sauron defeated uh, and uh, keep moving through. Uh, it has we're, we're we're entering the really interesting home stretch of the history of Middle Earth, right? Um, anyway, okay. Tonight, 
Yeah, James, we're oh, yeah we're 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 going to be doing the Notion Club papers exactly uh, in this in this book. It's going to be it's going to be really it's going to be really cool. Um, all right. So tonight, as I say, metaphysics. Um, this is tonight. We're going to get to one of the passages that I've been attempting to hold off discussing for like months and months. And really, especially ever since Gorfindel showed up, but really ever since we've had the Wraith world from Weathertop on. You know, when Frodo is on the is is in the Wraith world and he's seeing the Ring Wraiths and stuff. Uh, I've been. Many of you guys have been alluding to this passage, and I've been thinking of it, but trying not to talk about it yet, because we didn't get it yet. Um, but um, anyway, uh, here we are, uh, finally getting to it here tonight. Uh, so we're going to talk about the other side, and then I'm, I've am i paid uh, the penalty of um, uh, titling the class this, because I've I had uh, like the doors in my head all day. Uh, anyway, it's my own fault. Um Okay. Interesting. Trifle says of all the things that uh, it wishes uh, Tolkien had finished, Notion Club papers is number one. It's it's pretty high for me too. My number one is the is the Fall of Gondolin rewrite from the fifties, uh, the one that we get the you know that beginning of right in Unfinished Tales, and then it stops when they when he gets to the gates right as soon as he as soon as Tour looks down into Gondolin, you know it ends. That's that's my number one. Uh, that's if if there were one thing that he didn't finish that I'd want him to finish, that would be it. Um, but the Notion Club Papers is up there. It's probably in my top five. Fall of Arthur. I would also personally put higher than that, but but again, it's certainly the Notion Club Papers is 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 high on the list. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Let us move forward now. This was an interesting Wyatt. I think you're here today, right? I think I saw Wyatt E uh, here earlier on. He just caught up recently. Welcome and congratulations, by the way. Um, but um, uh, Wyatt commented on the metaphysics stuff uh from earlier on uh and like we're just getting to it today i don't know why if that was a coincidence if you were like thinking about the gore you're 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 commenting on one of the sections from back uh back earlier on when we were looking at gorfindel like one of those sections one of those earlier discussions in which i was trying not to talk about these passages and you happen to post it on the week in which we actually get to the passage so i've saved your comments i'm 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 going to come back to your comments after we read the passages in question and then we'll be able to sort of more fully uh discuss some of those things that you raised so we're we're going to come to that but first i wanted to uh uh, look at uh, Matt's comment. Uh, Matt, once again, uh, as so many of you have done at times, pointing out things that we've missed uh, in our sometimes over-hasty discussion of these passages. Um, he's recalling a quote from a few weeks back. Yes, I, Gandalf the Grey, said the wizard solemnly, there are many powers in the world for good or for evil. Some are greater than I am. Against some I have not yet been measured, but my time is coming. The Morgul Lord and his black riders have come forth. War is preparing. Matt says, I didn't want us to slip past this without setting it alongside Gandalf's compliment to Frodo, but you have some strength in you, my dear hobbit. Given that Gandalf is not sure how a mano a mano encounter between the Witch King and he would turn out, that statement feels a good bit stronger than a recapitulation of the surprise arising from hobbits being more like tough tree roots than soft butter. Yes, agreed. Uh, You're right, Matt. It's a very kind of understated compliment, right? 
you have some strength in you, uh, my dear Hobbit. You at least, I mean, even surviving an encounter with the Witch King, a one-on-one encounter with the Witch well, it wasn't exactly one-on-one. It was five-on-five, I guess, but uh, still... Uh, you know, you encounter, you, you survived this encounter with the Witch King, and not only survived it, but I don't know, you kind of gave him something to think about there, Frodo, right? Uh, you know, as we've been discussing, um, I, I agree. It, it's it's kind of an underrated compliment that he's giving, especially in that context. Um, okay. He then goes on to say, I think it's also worth considering the nature uh, of these rankings, that is, who's stronger than whom, right, and who measures up to whom, uh, and how they're achieved. This isn't as clear-cut as, as, as in Maori, in La Morte d'Arthur, who, who on a horse's whom lets you know the knightly standings. Magic in the Lord of the Rings appears to be, at its core, driven by the act of externalizing yourself. Sauron's more powerful with the One Ring because he has transferred some of his power into it, and in doing so has magnified it. When we watch Gandalf, I think it will be worth remembering that he considers himself a steward, and as such, his time will not be... His time, that is, like when he says, my time is coming, his time will not be measured by an outward display of power. Sauron externalizes some of his power into the Witch King and even more so when the Witch-King is upgraded. But Gandalf seems to be investing something of himself in others, like Theoden and the Rohirrim, who arrive when the Witch-King declares that his time has come. Seen in this light, it is the difference between the will to power slash dominate and the desire to inspire others to great deeds. I think there's a, there's there's really a lot of uh, interesting stuff here, right? Um, this idea of magic being driven by the act of externalizing yourself is kind of interesting, right? Thinking of the discussion we were having last week about what uncloaking means, right? Uh, was that last week or the week before? Anyway, recently, right, when Gandalf talks about, you know, now you'll see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Um, what exactly uh, does that mean? This idea of manifesting, uh, manifesting your power outwardly, like that externalization of power. This is a trend we know um, is, we know happens, right? We know is happening um, with Morgoth and with Sauron. The bad guys tend to do this, right? They tend to invest their power in others. That's how they dominate the wills of others. That's how they increase their own power over Middle-earth, right? Um but they also weaken themselves. They lessen themselves by doing that, make themselves vulnerable, and certainly uh, we end up with Sauron vulnerable, right, as a result, because, uh, you know, and that's why the, you know, the foundations of Baradur are destroyed and Sauron is cast out in the wilderness when the Ring of Power is destroyed. Um, because much of his power, which has been manifest in it, goes along with it. Now, Gandalf doesn't manifest his power in the same way. So both the... Um, the point that Matt makes about this externalization, in in a sense, this even um, this even kind of I think um, projects onto Gandalf a little bit too, right? Gandalf does externalize his power in some ways, not in the same ways like he's you know investing his power to dominate other people, but he is like sometimes he manifests his power outwardly, right? Again, thinking of uh, Matt's first concept there. Magic in the Lord of the Rings appears to be at its core driven by the act of externalizing yourself. So when Gandalf reveals his power, whether like 
by the creation of fireworks, right? Or the, the making of magic diamond studs, right? For the old Took that we learn about in The Hobbit. Or whether he's, um, uh, you know, whether he's, uh, um, making magical fire like he does with the wargs in The Hobbit, right? Um, whether he's, you know, blowing multicolored smoke rings. We see him doing a lot of this kind of thing um, in The Hobbit. Um, and yes, Tony, when he does, he weakens himself, right? We're going to see that, uh, too. You know, I've never felt so spent, he's going to say. Spent is a really interesting word. Uh, a fun conversation we had at dinner uh, after Nadermoot. Some, uh, uh, some, a couple folks were asking me, what passages are you most looking forward uh, to doing, you know, our close reading of in Exploring the Lord of the Rings? Um, and my answer was uh, the Bridge of Khazad Doom, really that whole sequence with Gandalf, because that's one of the most fascinating, that whole stretch from the Chamber of Mazarbal uh, down to the Bridge of Khazad Doom is one of the most fascinating uh, depictions of magic in all of Tolkien's worlds. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but also the Ringo South chapter. There's a lot of underrated stuff that happens in the Ringo South chapter, I think. Uh, anyway, that was a really fun discussion that we had there. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm thinking about Gandalf and the Bridge of Khazad Doom and the uh, the manifestation of magic there. Um, but yes, when Gandalf does expend power in that way, uh, externalizing his power so that it is visible and interacting with the world around them, it drains him, at least temporarily, right? Um, anyhow, um, and yes, Tony, you're right, Luthien also is spent, right? She gets tuckered out uh, after she uh, sings her song and dances her dance and puts everyone in Angband to sleep, right? She's all tuckered out after that and can't do anything about Karkaroth when they get back up to the top, which is how uh, uh, Baron loses his hand. Um, anyway, so... This seems sound to me, this idea of externalizing, and I think that'll be a really interesting thing to kind of continue to watch as we go through. Um, and um, anyway, the second thing that I would draw attention to that Matt points out here is this this idea of the, 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 the similarity, but very significant difference, of course, between Sauron's manifestation of power and Gandalf's manifestation of power. How when Gandalf's hour comes, right, his time, you know, my time is coming, Gandalf says, when his time comes, he is going to be putting forth his power too. And he also likes, so Sauron on the one side and Gandalf on the other side are both going to be investing their power in their followers, right? In their armies, like the, 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 the two sides are going to be invested with the power of those two figures, um, differently, right? But there is a parallel there. Um, but I think that that distinction uh, seems to me really right. The difference between the will to dominate and the desire to inspire others. Um, that's going to be really interesting to see, especially once Gandalf comes back, right? Look at the impact that Gandalf has. What is Gandalf's manifestation of power? What is Gandalf's role, right? Um, I think, you know, when he talks about my time is coming, I, I guess when his time, how do you know when Gandalf's time arrives, right? You know, the resurrection thing, right? Um, his time is going to arrive when he's Gandalf the White. That's when his time is now. And, you know, 
it will be fun to see uh, exactly how he manifests his power and what he does. Fewer burning pine cones, uh, you know, more other kinds of things, right, after he goes through that transition. Okay. Anyway, thanks, Matt. Really great points there. Glad we didn't just rush past uh, that passage. That would have been a shame. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Lincoln is thinking about a parallel between the uh, the kind of power that Gandalf wields uh, to this sort of power together with other people um, and, and what the hobbits of Buckland achieve when they drive off the Nazgul. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a kind of a parallel there. Um, I think if you, we, if you look at sort of the state of Buckland there, uh, when they drive out the Nazgul, there are definitely some similarities with what we will see in the sort of rousing of Phaedon and the muster of Rohan. Um, I think there are definitely some similarities there. Okay. Um, now, Boomful, you're right. His zapping Black Riders at Weathertop, that's a really good example, right, of externalization of his uh, of his will, right, of his force as well. Um, and yet, notice, Boomful, that he, having already done that, right, he's already squared off against the Nazgul, possibly all nine of them. Um, I doubt they were all nine of them. I don't know if they were all, were they all nine there? Somebody look it up in Appendix B. How many ringwraiths attack Gandalf on Weathertop? I can't remember off the top of my head how many of them were definitely there. Um, uh, anyway, we know that the four go off and chase him, but I don't know that necessarily all nine of them were there. But anyway, he's just squared off against a bunch of them at least, right? Um, and fought off, you know, successfully fought many of them off, but then he fled, right, to drive them away. Um, you know, he didn't come and have them withdraw from before him, right, like uh, they do with Gorfindel. Um, he can still say things like, uh, against some I have not yet been measured, right? Uh, the confrontation on Weathertop doesn't count, really, as a measuring of himself against the Witch King, I guess, fully, right? Um, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, interesting. Belongsman says he must truly know his time is coming, seeing as Saruman is multicolored now and the white mantle is vacant. Yeah, spoilers? No, sorry, <laughs> just teasing. Um, yeah, I mean, he's already seen this with Saruman, right? He knows that Saruman has fallen, um, and Belongsman, I think it's fair to say that Gandalf already will see the need, the responsibility, right, of himself to kind of step in. Saruman is not doing his job, clearly, right? Is unlikely to begin now doing his job. Um, so what's going to happen, right? Who's going to, who's going to step in? It's kind of, it's kind of down to him, right? Um, yeah. Um, Lincoln, yeah, Radagast might, might step up. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't, don't hold your breath. Um, yeah, Tony says he always thought that Gandalf meant Sauron there. I get some I have not yet been measured, or maybe Balrogs or something. Well, I don't think he's thinking about measuring himself against Balrogs, because nobody really knows that there's a Balrog around, right? It's kind of a surprise. I mean, they might have had suspicions, but it's kind of a surprise uh, to Gandalf, even. 
Um, they know there's something there, but they don't know exactly what it is until Gandalf recognizes it, right? When they, when they meet it. Um, um, yeah, Balrogs, I don't think they exist. Um, but against Sauron, maybe. I mean, and of course, as we were just saying, there will be a sense in which Gandalf and Sauron are the ones who are really squaring off. But remember, it's the Witch King who is really Gandalf's opposite number. Um, and that dates way back uh, in Tolkien's thinking, you know, when he was still the Wizard King. Um, and explicitly, you know, in the early drafts, when he was explicitly a member of Gandalf's order who had gone bad. Right. You know, he was like, you know, the like the the witch gang was like, you know, the like, you know, defected like Sith disciple of uh, uh, of of the White Council. Right. Um, so and and we'll still see that. Right. The, the Siege of Minas Tirith will still will still show that um, it's clear that the witch gang sees himself as Gandalf's opposite number, right? He might be wrong about that, but... Okay, Appendix B doesn't give a number of uh, ringwraiths for the attack at Weathertop. Maybe it does. Maybe it does in Unfinished Tales? In The Hunt for the Ring? Anyway, I think it's somewhere, but I can't remember it. Um, anyway, Mad Violinist, that's, that, yeah, I think that... that passage you're remembering affects my thinking too um when uh, gandalf says i am gandalf gandalf the white but black is mightier still uh uh indicates to me says mad violinist uh that gandalf thinks of Sa uh, sauron as a superior power uh, i think so probably um yeah good uh excellent fourth dauntless and irindus are both remembering the passage when that gandalf's going to be uh say in the next chapter of the council of elrond um when he says it would have been foolish to try that is to try to find frodo with all the nine at my heels yeah except notice he's plainly exaggerating there right because uh they're not all on his heels right only four of them are on his heels uh so that might be poetry i'm not sure but anyway um yeah. Um, yeah, JJ, he does work out which wraiths were where. Um, I'm not sure if, if we get the final, final version of that in Return of the Shadow or not. But anyway, not absolutely crucial. But, um, okay. Anyway, um... Yeah. Okay. Cool. Let's move on or back. Okay, because we didn't quite finish this passage last time. Um, we were talking about his prognosis after the removal of the splinter. Gandalf was telling him what would have happened, right? They tried to pierce your heart. And then we didn't fully get to that last paragraph, which is where I want to start again. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf, not to mention courage, for your heart was not touched, and only your shoulder was pierced, and that was because you resisted to the last. But it was a terribly narrow shave, so to speak. You were in gravest peril while you wore the ring, for then you were half in the wraith world yourself, and they might have seized you. You could see them, and they could see you. Um, 
first of all, we talked about this briefly uh, last time, that image of um, a narrow shave, a terribly narrow shave, right? And uh, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, several of you were suggesting that, like, what exactly is that metaphor? Presumably not about actual shaving, right? Um, but squeezing into a narrow space, like fitting, fitting between, um, you know, fitting between two narrow things that you barely sort of squeeze through, right? Um, uh, and presumably doing it at speed, which is why... Yeah, it's it's like a shave, right? I I think that's what we sort of agreed that passage was describing. But that's interesting in itself, right? Um, when he if he is characterizing their narrow escape as squeezing through a crack, um, you know, like Bilbo squeezing out the back the goblin's back door in the Hobbit, um. That is an interesting characterization of this, right? Um, he has Gandalf. Uh, um, Gandalf has the metaphor that he's using. If we're understanding, if I'm understanding that metaphor properly, um, is um, suggests there are two things, right? Uh, He's in a tight. He was in a tight place, but like there were there were things on either side, and he barely fit down the middle of them. Right. So like, what were the two possibilities? Right. It was a narrow shave. You barely made it through. Um, it's a very different way of thinking about this than the way that the flight to the Ford encouraged us to think about the narrowness of. Frodo's escape, right? It's just a different way of talking about it, but the different metaphor uh, strikes me as really interesting. Um, uh, on the one side, right, in the flight of the Ford, we were thinking of it in terms of boundary, right? It was like a race, right? It was literally a race at the end. Um, and it was about which, remember, there was like, which boundary is he going to get across, right? Um Here, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what is he, what is, how is Gandalf imagining him sort of squeezing through? Yeah, maybe, Matt. Maybe what it is is thinking about both the physical and the spiritual danger. Maybe it is that, right? On the one hand, he could have died. On the other hand, um, he, you know, could have, so he, he could have physically succumbed, right, to the power of the wound. He could have spiritually succumbed uh, had he, uh, had he despaired, right? Uh, had he surrendered to the will of his enemies, which we saw him still not doing, uh, even at the end. Um, so I think in that sense, uh, uh, we could, we could understand it as a narrow shave that way. There was only the, there was lots of ways, right? It could have gone wrong. Lots of ways he just could have crashed and died. Uh, and instead he squeaked right through, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, uh, uh, let's see, who was that? JJ? Yes, JJ, I agree with you. Your heart was not touched um, is a delightfully multivalent phrase, right? Absolutely. 
works symbolically as well as it works physically. His heart was not touched physically by the shard, right? The shard didn't make it all the way to his heart, but also metaphorically, right? Spiritually, his heart was not touched. His will was not compromised. Um, even though he was being sort of dragged into the wraith world there at the end, uh, corrupted uh, and twisted into it, he, he didn't, he didn't uh, give in. Uh, you know, he, we still see him invoking uh, Elmerith and Luthien there at the end. Um, anyhow, um, yeah, so for Thoughtless, the reason I'm emphasizing the metaphor there is I, I think it is a common expression, but it's still a metaphor, right? Um, and Gandalf draws attention to the fact that it's a metaphor by saying, so to speak, right? It was a terribly narrow shave, so to speak. Um, it's a metaphor, right? Um, but a metaphor of what exactly, right? I mean, I, again, I, I think that that's, it's interesting. It's important, I think, that he um, articulates the, um, the, the metaphor in that direction. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And Tony, I agree with you. Uh, as Tolkien fans were conditioned to react to Gandalf mentioning fate or fortune as a reference to something bigger to another power. Yeah. Fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf. Not to mention courage. Couple different really interesting things there, right? First, what do you make of the conjunction? What do you make of the conjunction? Um, fortune or fate? It's the or that I find really interesting. The first thing that I find really interesting there. Fortune or fate? I don't think that Gandalf is suggesting two possibilities and leaving Frodo to choose between them. Might have been fortune, might have been fate. Don't know which one, right? One or the other. I don't think that that's exactly what he's saying there, right? Fortune or fate. I think he's rather giving two different alternative explanations, right? Two different, like, you could think of it this way or you could think of it that way. Yeah, exactly. Several of you guys are thinking the uh, uh, the same way. Um, it's luck or it's destiny. You pick, right? But that was helping you however you want to see it, however you want to picture it. Uh, it's uh, it's one or the other, right? Um and, uh, yeah, interesting. Tony says, uh, uh, Fortuna is Roman, uh, whereas fate is Nordic. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think they are very different ways of conceiving of things, right? But it seems that they are both referring to the same thing, right? Um, that is this sense of how the universe is conspiring, right? How the universe is acting towards you. Um, how you are being integrated into the history as the universe is unfolding it, right? Um, the personification of fortune doesn't, you know, so fortune might sound, you could take this as being like, whether you want to think, think it's random, 
right? And was just good luck or whether you want to think that it's planned and that it was fate or destiny. Um, either way, right? Take your pick. It was on your side. Either way, right? Um, and yet, Fortuna itself, uh, fortune, doesn't exactly mean luck, right? Um, uh, Tony, as you say, Fortuna uh, is a goddess who plays favorites, right? You can you can be fortune. There are some people who are fortune's favorites, at least for a time. The fortune Fortuna is uh, very fickle and can never be counted on uh, to persist, uh, you know, for your whole life, which is why you will have no complaint as uh, uh, she, Fortuna, explains, well, at least Lady Philosophy says that Fortuna would explain in Book Two of uh, Boethius. Um, so yes, exactly. Clearly, Gandalf has read his Boethius, and the conclusion of which is there is no such thing as chance, right? Fortuna and fate are the same thing. And I think that that is one of the things, uh, I, I agree with you guys, that um, in putting the oar in there, he's allowing, you know, Frodo to think about it however he wants to think about it. But it's pretty much the same thing, right? There's no real difference between luck and fate. Um, but note what he adds, right? Not to mention courage. That is, will. Frodo's choices. Frodo's choices have mattered. He was courageous. He made good choices, brave choices. And that affected things. What has helped him? Fortune or fate? However you think. And courage. Those two things. So fate and his own will. Those are the two things that have shaped stuff. This, I think, is really consistent in Tolkien's thinking. Um, and I love these moments when we, like Gandalf, does it a couple times, gives us glimpses of this, right? Both of these things are operative. Is there such thing as fate ruling events, right? And conspiring to bring things about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That totally happens, right? Uh, fortune uh, has helped him. Fate has helped him. So do his choices. So does courage. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's um, uh, uh, a, a lovely little kind of taste of that. Um but his heart wasn't touched and only his shoulder was pierced. You were in gravest peril while you wore the ring. Now let's get on to the, the, uh, the central metaphysical question from today. You were in gravest peril while you wore the ring, for then you were half in the wraith world yourself and they might have seized you. You could see them and they could see you. Okay. You were in gravest peril while you wore the ring. At Weathertop, presumably, because that's the only time he wore the ring around the ring wreaths, right? Um, you were in gravest peril while you wore the ring, for then you were half in the wraith world yourself. Half in the wraith world yourself. Okay. And they might have seized you. So they couldn't seize him? They couldn't seize him if he weren't in the Wraith world. Presumably? Is how, if we take Gandalf seriously there, right? Which suggests, we've already discussed how it appears to be that the plan 
right? The Ringwraith's plan is not to take the ring and carry the ring back to Sauron. Um, and by the way, this by itself, even everything else that we've learned about the attack on Weathertop aside, again, the number one complaint I've heard from people about Weathertop and about, you know, the, 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 the you know, Fellowship of the Ring in general is that it's really unrealistic that the ring rates don't just take the ring from Frodo right then, right? I mean, they're right there. They could, you know, they've got them on the run. Why don't they take the ring? We've talked about that, right? We've looked at the E-bomb and everything else. It's not nearly as easy or as simple as it seems. But the second thing is, it's not at all clear that that's even possible. They're not trying to take the ring. They're trying to get Frodo. They don't want just the ring. They want the ring bearer to carry it back to Mordor. Um, so they might have seized you when you were in the Wraith world. So they couldn't seize him unless he's in the Wraith world. So he has to be put into the Wraith world. That's why the Morgul blade, right? That's why the accelerated Wraithification process, which goes on there. Um, I don't think, Wyatt, that we can go so far as saying that they can't interact with him um, until he's in Wraith form, because we know that people who are not Wraithified or wearing rings of power can be wounded by Morgul blades. Remember, Boromir the Steward is is, is a helpful uh, example to us here. Um, we know that that's possible. Um yeah, I wonder, Mad Violinist is wondering if uh, seize is here a synonym for command or dominate. Possibly, but I don't know. I'm not convinced of that. I, um, I'd i have to see, is the word seize ever used in that way? Do we have any other precedents for that? I mean, if we, it doesn't disprove it if we don't necessarily, but um, I think normally when we talk about seizing something... It's usually a literal seizing, um, and especially since we know that their plan is to, to capture him and bring him back. I mean, their plan is to seize him uh, and bring him and the ring that he bears back to, to, to Mordor with them. Um, it seems likeliest that it, he means literally that they would have seized him. Um, uh, you could see them, and they could see you, which at least facilitates the seizing, if not, is not a prerequisite for the seizing. Um, yeah. Uh, now, Mad, Mad Violinist, I could see it kind of working symbolically that way, right? Just as the, just as the statement for your heart was not touched works both spiritually and physically, right? Both symbolically and literally. Um, so they might have seized you is also both literally true and I think also metaphorically true in that way. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. There's no need for all that sniffing about now. Well, Lincoln, that's exactly it. Remember, they couldn't see him before. So even just finding where the hobbits were was a challenge previously, right? Um, we saw them quite close right? Snuffling in the underbrush, just like a couple yards away from where the hobbits were hiding, um, and not able to narrow down on them right now at the end of book one, they could see Frodo from a distance, right? Because he was mostly in their world. 
Um, yeah. Um, interesting. Irinda says, could the problem be more that while he wore the ring, Aragorn and the others could not seize him back? Um, you know, like that they w- might have seized you and there would, would there would have been no stopping this. Um, well, at least it would have been, at least it, it would have been harder. But James, I think yours is a very sensible question. Is the implication that if he hadn't put on the ring, they couldn't have done anything to him? Again, I, I, I don't, I, it's plain that they can interact with physical things, um, as uh, somebody was talking about um for dauntless they can ride horses they can wear cloaks they can carry hilts of daggers which uh can also be held by rangers and elves um it's clear that they can interact with physical things which would presumably also include um uh frodo right (laughs) also would include hobbits but um but they don't seem to be able to, you know, to, 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 to seize him. Katriana says they could see the gaffer and farmer maggot to talk to them. Yes, they could. Um, yeah, their horses could, Irindus. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they found the door of Gaffer Gamgee's house. In both cases, the hobbits spoke first, right? Gaffer, the Gaffer answers his door, and then the Ringwraith talks to him. Farmer Maggot says, be off, right? This lane doesn't lead anywhere, right? So Farmer Maggot comes out to accost him as he comes riding down the lane. Um, so they can probably smell them uh the hobbits and hear them and their horses can sense them and things. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Johannes, I think it's possible that it's just harder for them to seize him when he doesn't have the ring on. Um, yes. I mean, when Gandalf says, for then you were half in the Wraith world yourself and they might have seized you, doesn't necessarily mean uh, they could not possibly have seized you uh, had you not been wearing the ring. Um, I agree that that isn't, uh, that, that isn't implied there. Um, but it certainly would seem to facilitate it, and I don't think it's just about a visibility thing, right? He is vulnerable to them, it seems, in ways that he is not or that he is less vulnerable to them uh, when he's not half in the Wraith world. Um, and yes, JJ, I agree. They won't have known which one is necessarily the ring bearer until Frodo puts on the ring. Um, and yeah, Matt, you're right. They can find the door in Crick Hollow to knock on it as well. Um, so they're clearly not, you know, fumbling around, not able to interact with the material world. Right uh, or perceive the material world. Um, yeah, exactly. Trifle. They're not. It's they can. Living creatures cast shadows in the wraith's mind, which only the noon sun destroys. Um, they can perceive them, but only weakly. Just as remember, Aragorn makes the parallel to how they can perceive the presence of the ring wraiths as well. Right. Um, it's not just about the sniffing. Um, but, um, 
for then you were half in the wraith world yourself. Half. So when Frodo is wearing the ring, he is half in the wraith world. Um, that he enters the wraith world, right? That he enters somewhere else is to be expected, right? Um, that is it that, that, that jives with what we see, um, uh, when we were looking at that passage before, it's the half that's interesting. He is clearly half in the wraith world because his, he still does have, a f- his body's invisible, but it's still there, right? Bilbo, while invisible, can st- still has to squeeze through the crack and, and still loses buttons off his waistcoat, right? Which are picked up by goblins. Uh, so you still interact with the physical world. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, why exactly? I'm not, I'm not trying to make too much of the exact proportion. Um, it is just interesting to me that the proposition, a hobbit wearing the ring of power and being invisible is partly in the ring world, partly in the physical world. Let's, let's keep going and see how that compares with the other things that we see. Okay. So again, this is, uh, Gandalf has just been saying you could see them and they could see you. I know, said Frodo. They are, they were terrible to behold, but why could we all see their horses? Because they are real horses, just as the black robes are real robes that they wear to give shape to their nothingness when they have dealings with the living. Then why do these black horses endure such riders? All other animals are terrified when they draw near, even the elf horse of Glorfindel. The dogs howl and the geese scream at them. Because these horses are born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord in Mordor, not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. There are orcs and trolls, there are wargs and werewolves, and there have been and still are many men, warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun, and yet are under his sway, and their number is growing daily. Okay. Um, <laughs> Bricktails is wondering when, uh, uh, when Frodo was around geese, when Nazgul were near before. Um, isn't there a reference to... Um, uh, to geese in Bree, right? Or Farmer Maggot? Yeah, I think I, I think it's in Bree when the uh, when the Black Riders show up and and Butterbur is telling the story um, about how the geese were screaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's hearsay about the geese. Right, but he uh, uh, he brings it up. The, the dogs too. Um, so all other animals are terrified when they draw near. Frodo says that they were terrible to behold, and then asks why they could all see their horses. That by itself is a kind of an interesting question. Frodo is under the assumption um, Frodo is under the assumption that uh, 
their horses must have been wraith horses as well that the whole all of the figures are spectral figures right um but why could we all see their horses he's confused that this is a this is and you know belongs bond i agree it it does seem to be a fair assumption right um think even of how they identify them right black riders um as if they are just these spectral figures, the spectral figure of a black man on a black horse. Um, uh, and he understands that as a, as a whole. Um, and Gandalf has to explain, no, they are wraiths. They, their relationship with the physical world is tenuous. Are they half in this world and half in the other world as well? Do we understand, is it safe for us to uh, uh, express, continue that, uh, to apply that? That's the word I'm looking for. To apply that to the wraiths, as Gandalf had just applied it to Frodo while he was wearing the ring? Um, They do interact with the material world, right? With the horses and with the robes. Um. So they are interacting with the material world, even if their sort of minds and mad violinist, I agree with you. The most important. Um, yeah, Sam, I think I was unconsciously thinking of the legend of sleepy hollow too, when I was thinking of the spectral figure on a spectral horse. Right. Um, but anyway, the, uh, mad violinist, as you were saying, the word nothingness, right. Gives shapes to their, gives shape to their nothingness when they have dealings with the living. Nothingness is a really interesting word, suggesting that they don't have real substance. But again, I think that that's not about their substance. It's about their appearance. They look like nothing. Bilbo and Frodo also looked look a lot like nothing when they're wearing the ring, right? They're invisible. Um, so now the question would have to be, why do Bilbo and Frodo's clothes become invisible with them, but the Ringwraith's robes don't? Don't ask. I don't know. Um, the only thing I can think is that it's the difference between the way the ring affects you when you put it on, right, and you come under its power, versus they themselves, their own naked selves, right, have become permanently into the uh, uh, into the um uh, into the the wraith world, they have faded. Frodo has not, says Scudo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, you're right, JJ. This is this is an issue that Tolkien wrestled with, the question of the clothes. This is, um, it is with riddles like this that the mind of Tolkien was occupied in like the decade after the publication of the Lord of the Rings, um, and this is a really fun uh, thing about Tolkien, right? You know, and Tolkien's whole process, you know, he writes the Lord of the Rings and it's not, again, the way that he always talks about it, the way that he thinks about it, it's not necessarily that he like made mistakes or forgot about things, right? Probably he hasn't discovered the answers yet, right? These things have sort of emerged and he hasn't figured it out yet. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't discovered how this actually works uh, and why it should be that Frodo's clothes become invisible with him, but the robes of the ring raids don't. 
become invisible with them. Uh, Tony, I believe that that is a pretty good way of thinking about it, that it has to do with will and identity. Exactly. As Nathan the Wronged is saying, their kingly garments are invisible, but visible with them, right? They seem to be, they, they do seem to have clothes that are part of them, right? Part of that, that became invisible with them, their kingly raiment, right? Um, but then on top of that, they put on a cloak. Um, and Lincoln, I can agree that the invisibility of somebody wearing the ring and the incorporeality of the wraiths is a different phenomenon. But I want to be careful there because we don't know. We don't know that for sure. Um, uh, we don't know certainly um, if those are different phenomena. Especially since we've been told that wraithification is the ultimate end of the line, right? For a mortal who carries the ring of power. Um, and indeed we know that's the very process that the ring wraiths went through. They were once mortal Kings and they became raids, right? Um, anyway. Um, ah, excellent. Fourth Dauntless is recalling, found the quote. It was on Monday and all the dogs were yammering and the geese were screaming. So he has Butterbur's testimony for both the geese and the dogs. Um, good. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I was pretty sure I remembered. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, um, we don't know much about those rings and how they interacted with them. Did the nine rings make their wearers invisible at the time? I don't really know. Um, but, um, yeah, exactly. I can't see who that is. Uh, uh, but sorry, Mr. D a person who just posted on Twitter, it could very well be a difference between the ring of power and, you know, the, the, the ruling ring and the, the, the lesser rings. Um, but the, again, the problem is we don't really know exactly what the powers of the nine rings were and what a, you know, one of those mortal kings wearing one of the nine rings of power would have looked like or would have been like exactly, right? Um, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. As Mad Violinist points out, Gandalf's words are, a mortal who possesses a ring of power doesn't necessarily say the ruling ring. Um, yep, agreed. Agreed. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so I am, I said, I'm not a hundred percent sure that the invisibility, um, of a ring bearer of a ring wielder and the wraithification, uh, of the, um, uh, of, of the ring wraiths, uh, is necessarily a different phenomenon. It's different, of course, in the sense that one is temporary and one is permanent. Uh, but it is perhaps similar, right? Uh, you know, a, a sort of discernible step along that path. Um, because again, nothingness, right, is indeed what you see when you look at Bilbo or Frodo while they're wearing the ring. Um, because it's clear that it isn't actual nothingness, right? It isn't just void. Um, you know, it's not like if you passed your hand through, your hand would pass through. So to say that the ring rates are incorporeal, I think is misleading. They are corporeal. Um, I mean, you'd know if you bumped into a ring wraith in the dark. You wouldn't, you know, you couldn't like lean right through a, a, a ring wraith, you know, like 
they lean right through nearly headless Nick at the Gryffindor table, right? It's not like that. So, I, again, I don't think incorporeal actually applies. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so why does Gandalf speak of giving shape to their nothingness? Visual shape. If they weren't wearing the robes, you couldn't see them, right? So Farmer Maggot and Gaffer Gamgee wouldn't, like Gaffer Gamgee would say, you know, who's there when he opened his door and he wouldn't see anybody and he would just hear a strange hissing voice, right? And he wouldn't see anything. So if they actually want to interact like one being to another and get information uh, from the locals, they need to have a shape, right? A shape whose face you can't see inside a, uh, you know, inside a deep cowl is weird, right? Outlandish, as uh, Gaffer Gamgee says, uh, but um, but still, uh, you know, preferable to just being completely imperceptible uh, by them. If you want to be able to talk to the locals, there might be other times when it's advantageous to go about in just your invisible self. Uh, but Gandalf is specifically saying when they have dealings with the living, this is what they do. Um, Arden Cran says, then why not wait invisible at the Ford and grab Frodo as he passes? Well, um, Mad Violinist says they would be capable of seizing Frodo, ring or no. I have to think so. Um, again, they, they obviously, they can interact with physical things. That's clearly possible. Um, and we have more evidence of this in... The, at least th that at least at one point Tolkien was thinking of them this way from the draft. I'm thinking of one of the later, but still abandoned, drafts of the book one section, uh, when they actually did, the ring wraiths actually did seize Fatty Bolger, right? Or Hamilcar, as he was named at the time, when Hammy is taken out by Gandalf as a decoy Baggins, right? Gandalf comes out from the Shire and he brings soon to be Fatty Bolger with him as a decoy, calling him like, hey, Mr. Baggins back there, right? In order to try to draw the ring wraiths after him. And they actually do kidnap was, yeah, Odo at that point, or Odo, or I, I can't remember which, I think that was the last uh, manifestation of Odo, wasn't it? Anyway, whatever. Decoy Hobbit, right? They actually seize the decoy Hobbit. So that that is clearly possible. Um, and yet it seems <laughs> Odo is always a safe guess. That's true. If something happens with one of the Hobbits in one of the earlier drafts, just guess it's Odo, because it probably is. Um, yep. Anyway, I uh, yeah, that's the last hurrah of Odo, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't that Odo's last final stand was when he was getting captured by the uh, by the ring as the decoy. Uh, anyhow, um, the point is, I think it's pretty clear that the ring could conceivably hobbit nap somebody who was totally corporeal and utterly unconnected with the wraith world, as indeed Odo, uh, for all of his other advantages and many talents, uh, was not right in the least bit wraithified. Um, so that seems to be one of the things that we learn about them. And again, I come back to that. You were half in the wraith world, right? It seems a little bit 
strange, counterintuitive perhaps, to suggest that the ringwraiths themselves are not completely in the wraith world. Um, you'd think that they would be, right? But I'm not at all sure that they are here. Because again, they do have a tangible presence. Um, I, in the, uh, they do have a tangible presence in the physical world. As far as the invisible ambush, uh, at, you know, for like the, the ring wraiths to go starkers and horseless at the Ford, uh, to be there to, uh, lay a, lay a, an unseen ambush. But remember, they're not going to be unseen, right? There was always one and there are actually two members of the party who could see them perfectly well, right? Certainly Frodo and I certainly think Corfindel as well. So uh, that wouldn't help and it would just dismount them and therefore make it more difficult for them to A, impede, B, catch Asphaloth. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, good. Tony, um... The seizing of, uh, what? Gollum? Sorry, Tony, I'm trying to track back your uh, previous comments. Um, remember that Strider also interacted with them in some way. They are terrible. It could just be a spiritual scar that he's bearing from their presence, right? But, um, uh, it seems likely. And I think, again, certainly back in the earlier drafts, when we were dealing with Trotter the Hobbit with wooden shoes or potentially prosthetic wooden feet, um, that they had tortured him, that they had actually, they had interacted physically with uh, Trotter uh, in a pretty significant way. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah, JJ, I do think that that's an interesting point. Uh, JJ points out that fear is their weapon, so being unable to see them at all would weaken that weapon. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, there's something about having them in their black cloaks on their black horses galloping toward you, which is even more terrifying than the idea of them just lurking there by the ford. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. This is a little bit of a digression by Gandalf, right? We're digressing a little bit away from the whole wraith world discussion. Um, as which is Frodo's fault, because he was asking about the horses, right? Um, notice one of the things that gets re-emphasized here is the impact that they have on the living. Um, the wraiths, right? All other animals are terrified when they draw near. Like dogs, geese, hobbits, right? Everybody is terrified when they come near. The sense of their presence is very overpowering. Um, and it completely... Uh, overpowers the other animals. And notice Frodo includes 
Asphaloth, right? Frodo's aware of the fact that Asphaloth was terrified when the wraiths came near, uh, which seems likely to be a way of understanding how Asphaloth was acting at the ford, right? When Frodo had turned and was confronting them, uh, that Asphaloth was definitely scared, or at least certainly Frodo um, perceives it that way. Um, and then he explains about the chattels and servants of the Dark Lord. There are orcs and trolls, there are wargs and werewolves, and there have been and still are many men, warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway. Okay. So... I agree, Matt, there's a which of these things is not like the other element to this list, right? But let's come back to that in a second. Um, why is Gandalf going here? Why does he... I mean, because these horses are born and bred to the service of the Dark Lord and Mordor answers Frodo's question. And then Gandalf volunteers this other information, right? Oh, and by the way, right? There are lots of... you know, you. know, The fact is... Uh, there are lots of men who are under his sway, right? And there are orcs and trolls and wargs and werewolves. Oh, yeah. You know, this is all the, all these things you have uh, to look forward to, <laughs> right? Um, he went from, I don't want to tell him anything and I don't want to terrify him to, I'm going to go out of my way to emphasize all of the different servants that the Dark Lord has. Um, that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway and their number is growing daily. Yep, things are looking pretty bad and it's getting worse, Frodo, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so Belongsmond, Asphaloth, ridden by Gorfindel, would pursue the Nazgul. Yes, yes, they withdrew and I pursued them, right? On Asphaloth, so yes. Um, that does seem to make a difference there. Um yeah, Tony, that's how I read that, too, that he kind of perceives that Frodo has more to do and he's starting, Gandalf is starting Frodo's training now, right? You need to be aware of this, right? It's time for you to start thinking about this, um, to know what you're up against. Remember how vague Gandalf was about servants of the enemy, right? Um, maybe the Dark Lord will learn about Frodo's departure, right? So we want to make sure word doesn't get out. He's when he when they hears when they hear the sound underneath the window, right? Uh, uh, Frodo is clearly dreading that some spy of the enemy is there, but it's all very vague, right? Um, here he's learning in more detail the kind of thing that he can that he can uh, expect. In Maribeth, I agree. The distinction that he makes is that these other slaves are alive and under the sun. Right, that walk alive under the sun, um, alive contrasted with the wraiths, who are only slightly alive, right, um, and who don't walk under the sun in the same sense. Um, they're you look at them and you see nothingness, right, unless they're wearing their cloaks. Um, are they mostly dead? Yeah, exactly. I think so. I think that you can safely say that the ring wraiths are only mostly dead. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, Belongsman says all this prep makes me think that Gandalf already knows that Frodo is bearing the ring to Mordor. I think he has a shrewd idea. I think he had a shrewd idea back in chapter two, right? He raised that prospect, remember, and then says, but that task may be for others, right? And I think he was just being gentle with Frodo there when he said that. Um, yeah, and interesting Mad Violinist, yeah. Uh, Mad Violinist is interpreting Alive Under the Sun as they have chosen to serve rather than being dominated as the Wraiths are. Possibly. Under his sway is an interesting phrase there, right? And yet are under his sway. Um, that's not a very absolute phrase. That is, it doesn't, to me, necessarily suggest they are dominated by him. Right? They are um, uh, completely under the power of the Dark Lord. Like his, uh, his mind is um, controlling them. Right? I, I don't think under his sway means goes that far exactly. Um, however, and yet are under his sway does mean that they are in his power. Right? That he has rule over them. Um, yeah, yeah, um, I agree, Belongsman, being, uh, like, locked in terror, right, being, you know, terrified of the Nazgul and therefore doing what they tell you, uh, counts as being under Sauron's sway, absolutely, um, And their number is growing daily. And Mad Violinist, that more than anything else, convinces me that what we're talking about here is recruitment, right? Not control. Exactly. I think that's important, too. Um, but let's get back to the werewolves. Orcs? Sure. Trolls? Yep. No problem. Already met a few of them in The Hobbit, kind of. Uh, wargs? Yep. Know them from The Hobbit, too. No problem werewolves and men, right? Okay, so werewolves, uh, the thing that um, thing that doesn't seem to well, fit, or at least is unexpected in this list. I don't say it doesn't fit. It fits in well enough with the others in the list, um, but it is very strange because it's the one thing that we're not going to see later on, right? Unless we do. Um, Johannes is uh, asking, uh, are the wolves that the Fellowship fights later werewolves? That's an excellent question. And we will talk about that when we get to the ring goes south. Right. That's why I'm really looking forward to that chapter. As I said, I think there's a lot of stuff that happens in that chapter that there are lots of times, of course, in our experience here in our in our first 99. Right. Tonight is class number 99 in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. In our first 99 class sessions where we come across a passage that I, I usually just kind of skim over and don't really think about. I think there's a lot of those uh, in that chapter. But um Anyway, yeah. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. 
We'll see what happens. We'll see what we think when we get down there to that chapter. Um, but I agree. Other than that, I don't know that we have a whole lot of candidates for passages where we see uh, uh, werewolves. Um, I also agree that vampires are conspicuously missing uh, from this list as well. Um, we know that vampires are a thing that Tolkien is interested in, not necessarily in like the Bram Stoker sense, right? Vampire primarily means, as we can see from Bram Stoker, right? Careful readers of Dracula will recall uh, that to an English person, if you talk about a vampire, they are thinking first and foremost about a vampire bat. Um, and that seems to be what Thorin Gwethel is associated with, a vampire bat. She's not a vampire, uh, again, in the Count Dracula sense, exactly. Um, she seems to be a vampire that is a vampire bat in the same way that Draugluin was a wolf. And, of course, we will remember that just as we see evil wargs who would seem to be, in some sense, distant descendants, at least in the literary, if not in a physical sense, descendants of Draugluin, so we see uh, vampire bats uh, that, uh, uh, that, um, uh, that attach themselves to the stricken on the battlefield in the Battle of Five Armies at the end of The Hobbit would seem to be the literary, if not physical, descendants uh, of Thurin Gwethel as well. And yes, mad violinist Sauron did have the title Lord of Werewolves. That is one of the things on Sauron's business card. Absolutely. Um, so, yep, yep. Nothing at all strange about that. So you'd think if he's called Lord of Werewolves, that if he were to have hounds, they might be werewolves, right? Um, anyway, we'll see. We have very little evidence about that yet. All we know is that Gandalf brings it up in his list of stuff that Frodo should be aware of in case he meets them later on. Orcs, trolls, wargs, werewolves, men. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Fort Dauntless says he was thinking of the vampires from the Battle of Five Armies. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's where we've seen them most recently, surely. Absolutely. Um, now, Matt, that's a really good point. Matt wants to come back to the word chattels. Servants and chattels are wraiths. Uh, which are the servants and which are the chattels? Because chattel does mean, as Matt is pointing out, a movable possession or piece of property other than real estate, right? So something you own, which is not nailed down, right? Something that is movable. Um, uh, so from this list, orcs, trolls, wargs, werewolves, men... Which are servants and which are chattels, or are some of both in every instance, right? Um, the animals are chattels, but what, the wargs and the werewolves? Just the wargs? Are orcs chattels? Um, yeah, not really sure. Um, uh, Yeah, not not really sure what exactly that means. And if, you know, can we be certain? Um, 
Can we be certain that he is not suggesting that there are some of the men who are also his chattels, right? His possessions. Um, yeah, no, the expression about chattel slavery, that's, that's why, because slaves were chattel. They're not real estate, right? They're something you possess and they're not real estate. Um, so yes, chattel slavery just refers to owning slaves, right? Owning human beings as part of your possessions, right? Um, now again, when he refers to chattels, when Gandalf uses the word chattels here, he's not speaking about property rights exactly, right? That's not the that's not the point. What does seem to me to be the point, not all his servants and chattels are wraiths. It does sound like Gandalf is referring to two different grades here, right? Those who serve him willingly, voluntarily, knowingly, and those who are enslaved, right? Those whom he owns in a different sense. Um, yeah, so Mad Violinus is, is suggesting the wraiths are slaves, but the Haradrim are not. Probably. Probably, yes. Might there be some of the Haradrim that would count as his chattels? I don't know, right? Um, but in general, I would agree with that, I think. Um, Trifle is pointing out that this comes after the horses line. Horses would be chattels. Yes, yes. Um, but Tony, that's exactly what I'm thinking there too. That I don't think we can rule out that we have a partly, partly situation here, right? That is, some of the men are servants to him, right? Others might be chattels. Others um, might, he might outright dominate the wills of some men uh, and make them, therefore, in a sense, his chattels. Um, yeah, the orcs, I, I don't know. I guess I'd put them in the chattel camp, but yeah, everything about the orcs is kind of a gray area, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, Matt, I do agree that... Um, Tolkien does not shy away from using slavery language, right? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens down the road. All that I would draw from that right now is that it's clear that there do seem to be two different classes. He is suggesting that there are some who are active collaborators and, you know, who choose to serve. And there are others who are just owned. Right. Um, agreed, Irindus. When we get to the, the Tower of Kirith uh, in another eight to, uh, eight to ten years, we'll have a really good discussion on that. Um... Yeah, the trolls, well, we'll have to see what we think. We're not going to meet too many trolls, but we might meet some further down the road. Um, yeah, too old not to, I agree. The mouth of Sauron seems to be a collaborator, right? He seems to be a servant rather than a uh, a chattel. Definitely. 
Tony is disappointed that he doesn't disappointed that he doesn't use the word thralls, right? That is fun, but it's more in the Silmarillion dialect, right? Which is why you have the word thrall being used more often in the Silmarillion. Um, okay. Let's keep going. What about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Yes, at present, until all else is conquered. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here in Rivendell there live still some of his chief foes, the elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds, and against both the seen and the unseen they have great power. I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Gorfindel, then? Yes, you saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf-lord of a house of princes. Indeed, there is a power in Rivendell to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire, but all such places will soon become islands under siege, if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. All right. Um, okay. What about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Now, possibly, right? Um, readers who hear that line and are thinking, is Rivendell safe? Hear Frodo asking, am I safe in my bed? <laughs> right? To quote Tolkien wildly out of context. Um, am I safe here? Right? Is Rivendell safe? Oh, w will Elrond and the elves be able to hold out against Sauron should he try? The Ringwraiths can't get in and get us, can they? Right? That would seem to be one way to paraphrase or to understand Frodo's question. But in context, it is very clear that is not at all what Frodo means, right? When we go back, what is he responding to? There have been, and still are, many men, warriors and kings, that walk alive under the sun and yet are under his sway, and their number is growing daily. There are many men who serve Sauron, and their numbers are growing. He is recruiting. They walk around under the sun and yet are under his sway. What about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? Is Rivendell safe from betrayal? Yes, Mad Violinist, exactly. The question is, will Rivendell choose to serve Sauron? Does Sauron have servants among the elves as well? Are there elves who walk around under the sun and yet are under his sway? Is their number growing daily too, right? Uh, do we have to... How worried should we be here? Are we going to be betrayed? Um, that's, that's the question that Frodo is asking here. Um, and, and, and that's exactly what he's responding to. Is Rivendell safe? Yes, at present until all else is conquered. 
The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. So, Rivendell is safe at present until all else is conquered. Um, yes, Rivendell is not going to succumb. Rivendell is not going to be recruited. Elves in Rivendell are not going to get recruited by Sauron. They're not going to become his servants or his chattels, right? It won't be permanently safe, right? When all else is... It can be conquered. It is vulnerable or will be vulnerable when everything else has been conquered, right? It can be conquered, but it's not going to be betrayed. It's not going to be seduced. It's not going to be recruited. Um... Sorry, bunch of conversations going on that I'm kind of working my way through here. Um, yeah, Finboga is 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 suggesting a parallel to Gondolin. Is something like that going to happen here? Because remember, it only takes one, right? There was only one elf who chose to serve Morgoth, right? Only one of the Gondolindrim who chose to serve Morgoth, and that was the fall of Gondolin, right? Um, not all of his servants and channels are wraiths. Absolutely. Um, so hang on, guys. Stop with the Silmarils debate, please. You're taking up a lot of space and I can't keep track of things, right? I'm not, we're, we're not there yet. Anyway, um, it's an interesting question, but just hang on with that. Um, uh, Yeah, all of you guys. Wait, wait. Focus on this paragraph first. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. When did they? Before? This has to be a reference to Celebrimbor. This has to be a reference to the elves of Eregion. Um I think it's important that... Um, uh, I I think it's important that they um, he starts with the listen to right if they if he just said never again will they serve him it would make it sound like there were a whole bunch of elves who were just allied with Mordor previously right but that's not what he says um Fort Thoughtless says, I get the listen to as a reference to a Regian, but serve him seems a bridge too far. Well, never again will they listen to him or serve him. I don't know. What happened in a Regian? Wouldn't that be a fun question to answer? Wouldn't it be really fun to actually, you know, do an in-depth depiction of Sauron and Eregion? That would sure be fun. 
Um, <clears throat> so I think that it is, it seems to me very possible to describe what Celebrimbor and his folks did with Sauron as serving him. I, I don't think that it's just, um, um, I don't think that it's just a technicality, right? Like served him in the sense of they served his purposes. I, yeah, that's true, but that's true of lots of things, right? Many things can be made to serve Sauron's purposes, but that's not the same as serving him in the sense that we're talking about here, right? Like the men who are walking about and are under his sway, right? Um, they served him like they did what he told them to do in making the rings of power, right? Celebrimbor, the three, we're going to get a little bit more distinction about that later on, but um, at least some of the elven smiths of Eregion did serve Sauron. And they, he comes and says, I will uh, uh, do what I do, right? Uh, learn from me. Uh, become my, you know, apprentices. I will teach you things, and you can. And and they did, right? They learned from him. They 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 served him, right? I mean, I definitely, uh, I definitely think that that's you could describe it that way. Um, yeah, are there? Uh, um, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. That um, Tony and uh, Mad Violinist are both pointing out Celebrimbor's horror in realizing that he's been deceived into aiding and abetting Sauron's plan. Yes, I think in part. I think in part, absolutely. Um, they've been they, they were taken in in a really serious way, right? They did serve Sauron. They didn't swear allegiance to him knowingly, right? They weren't recruited by Mordor. Exactly. Not even to the extent that uh, that Saruman has been. Um, and yet they were they were serving him. Right. Um, and this, I think, is why remembering that is why Gandalf is saying they'll never do it again. Right. They've learned from that. And that isn't going to work again. Um, Tony is wondering if the elves who became thralls of Morgoth could be what he's referring to. Possibly possibly. Um, I wouldn't think so. Again, it doesn't sound like it. This sounds like they've learned their lesson, right? Um, never again will they listen to him or serve him, right? Yeah. They fool me once, shame on you, right? Is, 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 seems to me the way that that sentence goes. And I don't think the thralls of Morgoth who are taken and placed under the spell of bottomless dread in the Silmarillion really count in that same way. That's not a fool me once kind of situation. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Scudo, I think that's exactly um, what we see. Sauron taught them the art of ring making and he, you know, built traps into their technology that let him exploit even the rings that he didn't make himself. Yes. Um, and I wonder, 
thinking back, Matt, to your point that I brought in from the discussion board at the very beginning about your own, the power being made external, right? And especially in the bad guys, the way that the, your power is weakened. Remember, I'm not sure this isn't true of the Elven Lords, even of Celebrimbor himself, right? He put the power of the Elf Lords, some of the power of the Elf Lords into the Three Rings, right? And now that's dominated. But remember, when the power of the Three Rings pass away, it's curtains for Elvendom in Middle-earth, right? Um, Goadriel's going to diminish and pass into the West. Frodo's coming is as the, the coming of doom to Lothlorien, one way or another, right? Things are done. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I think that Celebrimbor did some of that kind of same thing that Sauron and Morgoth did, right? And he realized, I think that alone, he realizes, okay, here, I thought I was doing this thing to like get more power to accomplish the ends that the elves really want to accomplish. And now I realize I've been made vulnerable, right? Now he has the ruling ring that can dominate this part of my power, right, that I've put into these rings. Um, and now I can't take it back, right? And I can't, and now he has to set it aside, right? He can't even wear the ring. So now he is separated from his own power. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal when Celebrimbor... So even the making of the three, which Sauron himself did not touch, still puts him in the power of Sauron, right? It's still a trap. It's still a trap. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay, so... I'm, tr I'm trying to think, and you know, several of you are asking, about, again, about Silmarillion stuff and everything. Is there another story that could underlie that? They may fear him and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. Could it be a distant memory of Morgoth and, you know, Melkor and the Noldor in Valinor, right? In the unrest of the Noldor? The Noldor listened to him right? To the enemy, to Morgoth himself back then, right? And served him a little more indirectly, right? Did his will, right? Accomplished what he was trying, became his instruments. You know, I, um, I still don't think so though. I still think we're, I tend to think we're thinking about, because it's, it's Sauron that we're talking about here. Um, and normally, if we're going to th be thinking about Morgoth instead of Sauron, somebody will make that explicit. The narrator or Gandalf himself would make that explicit. Um, it's going to be a Balrog of Morgoth, remember, when Legolas explains it. Um, so when we need to clarify which Dark Lord we're talking about, they usually do, right? Um, because it's Sauron, that's why I, I, I think the only issue of elves ever serving Sauron was Celebrimbor uh, uh, and uh, the elves of Eregion. So, yep. Yep, that's where I think 
that that's where I think that does tend to go. And here in Rivendell, there lives still some of his chief foes. So having given Frodo the bad news in the previous paragraph, right? So yeah, the enemy has lots of servants, right? Servants and chattels both, um, including many men, right, who walk about on, uh, under the sun and yet are under his sway. So all of his, you know, he's got different kinds of servants and slaves all over the place. Elves, nope, nope, elves are fine, right? They're not going to be serving Sauron. You don't have to worry about the elves. They're all good. And then he gives a little bit more additional information, right? Um, here in Rivendell, there lives still some of his... Ch- not only is Rivendell safe in the sense that the elves aren't going to aren't, aren't gonna go over to him, right? None of them are going to be walking around and in his sway. But wait, there's more. It's even better than that. Here in Rivendell... There live still some of his chief foes, the elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds, and against both the seen and the unseen, they have great power. The elven wise. Lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. We are talking about the Calaquendi here. We are talking about the Noldor. And he makes it very explicit. It's not about the trees. It has nothing to do with the trees. He doesn't mention the trees. He mentions the Blessed Realm. Those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm. If you've been to the Blessed Realm, you count. right? If you've not been to the Blessed Realm... You don't. Um, so that's how he explains it here. Those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at both, at once, in both worlds. So the elves, the Calaquendi, those who have been, who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm, um, live at once in both worlds. Like Frodo when he's wearing the ring. Like presumably presumably the ring wraiths as well. So the Calaquendi, the elves who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm, are amphibious, right? They live at both, at, at once in both worlds, right? Whereas Frodo wearing the ring is unnaturally amphibious, right? Um, he's not meant to be in the Wraith world as well. It's unnatural how he's drawn into the Wraith world by the power of the ring. And the Wraiths have ended up in a deeply and permanently unnatural state, dragged out of their place, right? Um, Scudo Thingol totally dwelt in Valinor, right? Not for very long, but it doesn't matter, right? Uh, I, I, Thingol clearly counts as Calaquendi. He's been to the, he's been to the Blessed Realm. Notice the parallel, though, there. This is not, don't, don't get caught up on technicalities here. The important thing is those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at once in both worlds, right? So we have two realms, Middle-earth and Valinor, right? And remember, we're in the post-Numenorean world here, right? We're in the post-bending uh, of the world, Um Valinor has been taken away. Valinor, the Blessed Realm, is now somewhere else. It is a world apart, separate 
from our world, existing on a different plane, right? Um, and so we are given this explicit parallel. Elves who have lived both in our world and that world, that other world, live at once in both worlds. When he says that, again, start at the beginning of the sentence again. I'll start two sentences back again. And here in Rivendell there live still some of his chief foes. The elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas. Beyond the furthest seas. Okay. They do not fear the ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds. What worlds is he referring to? He hasn't said the business about the other side yet. He didn't say anything about the Wraith world here. He could be referring back to the Wraith world because they were kind of just talking about this, right? Um, you know, the, nothing, the nothingness of the Wraiths and um, not all of his servants and chattels being Wraiths and um, uh, you were half in the Wraith world yourself. So is he talking about the Wraith world when he says live at once in both worlds, this world and the Wraith world? I, I think that he he does he is talking about that. But what, what I, again, what I emphasize, it's been a while since Gandalf has referred to the Wraith world. What he immediately has just referred to is the Blessed Realm. Those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at once in both worlds. Is there a sense in which the Calaquendi, elves that have been to Valinor, that have left this world behind and come to Valinor, in some sense, live at once in both worlds, our world and Valinor. Right? In some sense. At the very least, there appears to be a parallel between our world, our world in Valinor, on the one hand, and the visible world in the Wraith world, on the other hand. Yeah, Nathan the Wrong says you can take the Calaquendi out of Valinor, but you can't take Valinor out of the Calaquendi. Yeah, it's kind of how he makes it sound, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Matt, exactly. This does seem to open up a, a, a completely new understanding of that Wraith world and what this is, right? Um, Matt asks, could the Wraith world then be the product of uh, Morgoth slash Sauron attempting to create a lesser degraded version of Iluvatar's creation? Something like that, right? Um The elves would have had it first, presumably, right? Um, so many good questions. Because now we're getting into the heavy metaphysics here, right? And against both the seen and the unseen, they have great power. The seen and the unseen. Both worlds. Right? Okay.
living in Valinor, dwelling in the blessed realm, gives, enables you to live at once in both worlds. The world of the seen and the world of the unseen. The material world and the wraith world. Right? Um, yes. Pause and think about that for a second. When the Valar brought the elves across the sea, they changed them. Right? The invitation to live at Valinor is not just an invitation to come move in with us. Right? It's not just about geographical proximity to the home of the Valar themselves. You know, stop slumming it over there in Middle-earth and come over um, where everything's nicer, over in Valinor, right? We'll make a special place for you, right? Um, it, it, obviously, there's more to it than that. Presumably, even before... Um, or let me say this the same thing a different way. When the world is made round after Numenor and Valinor is taken away from the rest of the world, that's not the point at which Valinor becomes fundamentally different from our world. What changes is the access to it. In the old world, in the old flat world, pre-Numenor, it was possible just to get in a boat. Now, difficult. Remember, even Arendel had some pretty significant difficulties doing it. But in theory, you could get into a boat and you could sail to Valinor, to that other world. Right? The world of the unseen. Because when you dwell there, you live at once in both worlds. Right? You don't lose your physical body that you had and your physical senses. But you gain presence, a dwelling, right? An existence within the other world, the unseen world. So when the Valar invite the elves over to Valinor, they change them, right? Um, the elves are changed as a consequence. And so when they return to those who have returned to Middle-earth, the elven wise, lords of the Eldar from beyond the furthest seas, they're different from the rest of the elves. And they have power against both the seen and the unseen. Um, I agree that Fort Dauntless it is curious that Gandalf chooses the term Wraith World. Um, but he's talking about Frodo's experience and what Frodo could see and the Ringwraiths, right? And it's also very clear that the presence in the world of the Unseen of the Ringwraiths permanently and Frodo temporarily is unnatural, right? 
this is where I want to come back to Matt's idea about the uh, imitation, mockery, right? Um, Wraithification, therefore, if we're understanding this properly about the blessed realm, right? Wraithification is Sauron's attempt to emulate that, right? The Valar gave their servants, the elves, the ability. They gave them great power against both the seen and the unseen, right? They expanded, in some sense, their being into something different, right? To have power over both the seen and the unseen, right? They now live at once in both worlds, where they did not before. Sauron wants to do the same thing. He wants servants who can live at once in both worlds. And he's made them, right? That's what the Ulairi are. That's what the ring wraiths are. Servants which he has upgraded, not because they've dwelt in the Blessed Realm, but because they have been enslaved by him. He has found a way to recreate through a technology, right? Through a technological process, the making of the rings of power, right? Through a technological process, he has replicated imperfectly, unnaturally, wickedly, the effect, right? This also helps to explain why ring raids run away from Gorfindel, right? Because if this is the way things are, right, then the ring raids are really just a knockoff <laughs> of what Gorfindel's got, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And Trifle, I agree. It's not, uh, it's, this isn't the, the first plan, right? But it was the plan. Yeah, his plan is to make all of them raids. Right, his plan is to, to 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 dominate them, right, to bring them under his power, um, but the making of them into raids. What Gandalf is suggesting here, what he's explaining here, and going on to explain even more, the making of things into wraithification means crossing this line, crossing this boundary, right? When you put on the One Ring, you are dragged, forced, pushed across that boundary, right? You are now dwelling at once in both worlds where you didn't before. That's what it means to become invisible when you put on the ring, right? Um, yes, Sauron's purpose is domination, right? To make servants which are going to be under his dominion. But is wraithification a necessary prere prerequisite? No, in fact, Gandalf has just been explaining that he has many servants and chattels who are not wraiths, right? But he has some who are wraiths, and wraiths were his goal. Remember that many of the elves don't dwell at once on both sides, right? Um, so yes, he wanted to make wraiths out of dwarves and elves as well, right? Um, those two didn't pan out, right? No elf wraiths that we know of, no dwarf wraiths. We know for sure that that didn't work out. At least that's what Gandalf says. Um, it did work out, 
for uh, for men. And Scudo, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, this was this was his trap, right? But again, what I'm pointing out here is not just the fact that he tried to entrap them, the fact that he tried to enslave them. He didn't just try to enslave them. He enslaved them and turned them into wraiths. That's not the same. That's not inescapable, right? Um, there are other ways in which he can enslave them. We know because there are other ways. There, there are other there, men are under his sway right now, right? Who dwell alive under the sun, right? Who have not been made into wraiths. So that's an option. That's on the table, right? But he chose wraithification as his mechanism, right? Wraithification as the 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 thing that is going to bring them under his dominion right and that's very much what gandalf had been explaining about frodo right frodo being becoming a wraith under their dominion right um yes mike says he's uh, tearing up a bit imagining frodo arriving in valinor and seeing the wraith world as it, as it was supposed to be not just sauron's bastardized simulacrum yeah that's really kind of nice isn't it imagining the ring wraiths going they have had a taste what do the ring bearers all have in common they all have in common that they have been in the other world right they have also dwelt at once in both worlds. And what is the, one of the consequences of this? They can't be content just in our world. So what happens to them? They go to the blessed realm. Right? They go to the blessed realm uh, and dwell at once in both worlds. Presumably. At least for a time. Right? Um, that's kind of awesome isn't it i think that's really neat and it really again if we're following correctly the clues that are here in this passage um it really helps to understand frodo's healing in the end right it's not just a matter of like there are better healers in valinor than over here right there are some wounds that can't be healed you know, but, you know, if you can go over to the Blessed Realm, right, their clerics are a way higher level over there. So, you know, they have access to much more potent healing spells than we have over here. I don't think that's what the point was, right? Um, yeah, so Luke is thinking about this world not being your home, right? And that's the final thing that I would want to say here. Um, yeah. No, I have no time. Remind me to start by saying that in two weeks. Uh, um, but this is where I want to come back. Um, uh, I want to come back to see uh, why and I've got it, or at least a big part of your uh, your comment here. I want to come back to this, uh, some of the stuff that you were talking about here, and we'll... Um, We'll use that as a springboard back into this discussion next time. Um, but again, just last comment then. I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel then? Yes, you saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side. One of the mighty of the firstborn. Yes. Glorfindel lives at once in both worlds. That white light that you see shining through the form and raiment of the rider... Yes, that's how he is on the other side. And that transition here, I think, is important. 
That is the transition of Gandalf talking about the Wraith world to talking about the other side. He's talking about the same thing, right? But at the same time, he's not talking about the same thing. Um, where Frodo is, right? The experience that Frodo is having when he is fading to gray, right? When he's coming under the power of the Morgul wound and being wraithified. It is not the Blessed Realm at all, right? It is not. Um, th- so you could say he's in the same place as Gorfindel because you can see him. There's Gorfindel, shining white right in front of him, right? So yes, he is in that same world. Everybody else is going gray, but boy, can he see Gorfindel clearly, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yet he's not in the same place because it's about his own mind and what's happening to him. Right. He is being he is not meant to be there and he's not meant to be there in that way. And I think this is a super important point. Right. It's not only that he has been dragged there against his will by the power of the Morgul weapon. That's a big deal, too, I think. But he's a mortal. He is a mortal. Right. Oops. I just lost it. Um. Yes. So, um, he doesn't belong there. It's not right for him to be there. Remember, mortals are banned from the blessed realm. There are consequences when Eärendil goes there, when Eärendil goes there, and it's Eärendil, right? He's meant to go there. He's doing his job when he gets there, as some of the Valar point out. But remember, others of the Valar are like, he's immortal and he's come to the Blessed Realm. This is a problem. We have a problem now. What are we going to do with Eärendil? Because mortals aren't supposed to come here, right? Mortals aren't supposed to go to the Blessed Realm. That includes Frodo, right? That includes the ring raids themselves, their existence, their presence. So it's not just that they have done so under evil auspices, right? They're mortals. What would an elf wraith look like? I don't know. We don't see one, right? Um, But I don't think it would be the same. Because elves... What's the other name of the place that Frodo's going to end up? What else is it called? Elven home. That's where elves belong. They're fine over there, right? An elf going to Valinor is like a is like a is like a fish in water, right? They belong there, at least in part, right? Um, mortals don't belong there. Mortals are not. They're meant to be excluded from there for good reason, right? Um, so more on this next time. We'll 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 start with this. Um, maybe come back to this. Yeah, we we need to talk about there is power two of another kind in the Shire. We definitely can't skip over that line. Um, but um, okay, so um, yeah. Anyway, this big stuff. Right? I've been waiting for months and months and months to talk about this passage. This is what I've been waiting. This is what I've been holding off talking about until we got here. Uh, Cause I really want to, uh, I, I really wanted to wait until we got the actual words here. Okay. 
Thanks very much, everybody. We'll come back to this uh, next. We'll finish up this passage, and then we will um, uh, we'll we'll move on into Frodo and Gandalf's further into Frodo, Frodo and Gandalf's discussion. Field trip time. Those of you who are here on Twitter with me this evening, um, feel free to join me on Twitch, Twitch.tv/signumu, uh, and uh, we'll be we'll be switching over to there. Thanks for joining us. Glad Twitter is mostly working uh, now again on Periscope. Thanks, everybody. Over there. And all right. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Now, see, so, hit from the wrong uh, 10 sessions on the Council of Elrond. Um, well, we did 14 on Maybe the flight the to the intro. fort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. I, I think the preamble know. might be ten. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, There's been at least ten on on everyone who's sitting at the council and possibly where it was being held. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're really gonna have to comb that bit because I don't think any of us ever figured that one out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Okay, so here we are on Honor this evening. We are back on the legendary oh, server. I upgraded Narnian so that he's not level five anymore, which means he can ride a horse. I'm excited to ride a horse. <laughs> uh, uh, so, um, uh, very good. Uh, all right. So let's head back over uh-huh. to Rivendell. Awesome. Let's do that. Yes. Okay. Just changed the brightness on my screen. I couldn't see anything. All right. Oh man, that was a fun discussion. Yeah, no, the the bits about the 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 dark uh, perversion or in an attempt to imitate, you know, yeah. that, that's I, we do always come back to that in our discussions on the nature of evil in Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, about the way the sort of the imitation and perversion, which does seem to be implicit in uh, um, evil, and you know the acts of evil people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh. So, so where are these trees you'd say that that it Oh, oops, we went the other way. Oh well. That's alright, no worries. They're, they're not over here. But yeah, I there were some there were some different trees that I'd never seen before. Maybe they're just Interesting. Here. on the legendary server, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. But there was definitely some foliage here in Bree that I did not had not seen before. I'm not so much of a Tolkien fan that I, you know, wax poetic about nature all the time. Just right. some of the time. Are there more trees here? Now I'm all, like, looking around Bree and being like, are there more trees here than there usually are? It's hard to tell. I always turn my res down. <laughs> I see. No, I don't usually do that, but... Uh, Amethorn suggests that they're legendary trees. It is possible. Trees Can't of legend. Goodness knows there are plenty of legendary trees in Tolkien. Okay. Scenario has been adding new things all over the place. Yeah. That's why that's what I was thinking. Rightly so. I can't wait till June until maybe July when we get update twenty four because you guys will not believe what I saw. Yeah, I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, I got shivers just now, and it's yeah. not because my AC just switched on. Oh, and and 
Finboga, yes. Um, asking was asking if that's a new observation. Um, yeah, no. I mean, like I all this stuff about um, the two worlds and the other side and Valinor and the Ringwraiths and yeah, no, that's I'd never have thought of that before. Um, it's one. No, of the, that was a good idea. One of the things that I've been one of the reasons I've been really excited to get to this place is that. I always had a kind of sinking sensation that I had never really sort of worked through the um, um, the whole other side business, right, uh, uh, really fully. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, anyhow, that was uh, yeah. that was fun. Um, okay. Want to hear my theory? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, no, I was dumb. This one was way better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had some theory that, that the, the Wraith world was tied to the dimension that Morgoth was chained to. Oh, that is interesting. Um, That's what I thought it was. Yeah, so... Because it is tempting to imagine the Wraith world as something kind of intrinsically punitive, right? Like it's... <laughs> like a, like hell, essentially. Yeah. Right? Something, something of that sort. It, um, it's definitely like with the ring power of the ring comes price and that price is a losing of oneself in this right, world right exactly let's see hang on a second i want to go around actually why don't we just start down here since we're here all right because we were up but we don't have to retrace our steps all the way around let's Let's go back. Let's go down. Let's let's do it the other way around. Let's come back down to the main intersection down here, and then we'll start Spire at the spire meeting, meeting and come back. Yep. Um. So yeah, last time we were looking at the the various houses that might be for other houses of uh, yeah. Elderman. Yes, this idea of the 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 retention of the the kind of distinction not division but distinction between the different uh, houses of the noldor yeah and additionally um, what role those families might play yes exactly exactly um but um um but anyway also at the same time thinking about your suggestion about about hell i'm not sure that they can't both be true in a sense um uh-huh. If or well, I know, uh, the, sorry. So you mentioned hell, and the Catholic view of hell is the absence of God. Yes. So that yes. would make sense in in a way if you take Tolkien's thing, because it would be an absence from the light of Valinor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Matt was suggesting a similar thing. Uh, oh. <laughs> sorry, well, <laughs> sorry. Uh, that Frodo is leaving the world, but he's not going Salud. into the blessed realm. He is in a place of absence rather than a place of peace. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Um, or again, another Catholic idea, right? Um, is that that, or like as uh, C.S. Lewis said it, though. Again, here he's he was he's articulating a a, a traditional idea. Which is the the you know this the 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 doors of the cells of hell are locked on the inside, right? Hell is a a thing that is determined that is made by I think Dante, right? Uh, uh-huh. Hell 
the physical hell that Dante tours and visits with the with this with the nine different levels um, is physically made by the fall of Satan. Like when Satan falls, the earth shrinks away from him, and he is lodged to the midriff in the floor of the ninth circle of hell. Um, that is to say, hell is a is is not a thing. It's an unthing that is made, but it's made by the choices of Satan himself, right? It's made by the choices of those who go there, right? They, in a sense, make it for themselves, and it is what it is because of what they have made it through their choices, right? It's so like that symbolism of Mongolian eating herself. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, in a sense, I do think that it works. I do think that uh, if you have. Um, uh, if you have, if you think about the Wraith world as a, the, this sort of, this other place that is made in an attempt to gain more power, right? To have power on both sides. And, and, and it gets power on, but the Wraiths have real power, right? Yeah. Uh, Frodo has real power. Like ring bearers gain real power, though, you know, at great cost. Um, uh-huh. uh, but that's also that you know so so the 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 way in which they're kind of going into a sort of personal hell and that's another way of thinking about that you know the difference between the gray and horrible world that uh frodo is going in this is the same other side that gorfindel lives on quite peacefully right um and yet yes. to frodo it's really bad because of how he's going there right because of because of those circumstances um yeah, uh, I mean, and in that case, it also makes sense that he would need to be healed by the valent, the light of Veru. Yes, yes. I mean, it's like it. it's like the, f- the the sort of ultimate example of of grace, right? How do you ah. heal somebody who has been scarred by being dragged into the wraith world by inviting them into the other world, into that other world, and to live there, right? Uh, to invite yep. them fully into it. Um, so, you know, I think it all holds together and is really cool, but let me not get distracted by further metaphysics yeah, and instead continue on with field trips. We have some we serious archaeogaming to, to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we're here at the Spire of Meeting, which is as near the center of Rivendell as no matter, right? So uh-huh. um, we have it near the crossroads. So looking again, geographically, We've got the crossroads, like the, the, the path into Rivendell, like the primary path into Rivendell. Um, uh-huh. And uh, we are, as we, you know, we're so that crossroads that we just came from here, the one which goes across and then up the mountain, weaving off to the last homely house, which is clearly this sort of center, like ideological center yeah. of, uh, uh, of Rivendell. And then the place which is the densest population as we can see even on the map that we're headed up towards the sort of mercantile center of Rivendell but clearly the population center of Rivendell as well Um, and so in the midst of that we have this thing called the Spire of Meeting it's not much of a spire or at least like if you just described Spire of Meeting to me uh, what I would look for is I don't know something a little more obelisky Right. So um, a way to get up there. It's like this is a lot of building with no physical, visible way to get up there. It's just yeah. pointy and tall. Exactly. Why does it even have windows? Why does it have windows? <laughs> I don't even know. And and again, like so, I guess the thing. 
what's the thing called in the Barrow Downs? There's a uh, spire there too, right? The dead, dead spire. The dead spire. Oh, dead spire. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. I thought there was a spire there. That looks like a spire, right? That is like a pillar, right? This isn't yeah, a pillar. It, this is like a unusual gazebo. Minaret kind of thing. Yeah. It is almost like yeah. a minaret, actually. Also, it doesn't seem like a great place to meet anyone. There's nowhere to sit down. It's less comfortable than most gazebos. Do elves not sit as well as not sleep or need handrails? <laughs> right. Uh, oh, got... Don't do that. You gotta go into that instance <laughs> now that you're level 50. Oh, right. It's the chronicle of this events. Is the chronicle of events, but it mostly follows the, the fall of the last... Uh, Durin, I believe. Right. Well, I, I guess it's a table and not a chair. So I thought there was like one chair in the middle of this, which again would seem even stranger in the Hall of Meeting for there to be only um, one chair. Um, I mean, you could sit on it, but it'd be very rude. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe sit on the steps, but yeah, it's like it, you you think that the Spire of Meeting, because there's so many you know tra- trade and travel routes that go through here. Being the last only house, the Spire of Meeting would be a place for people to meet, like with other members of their caravan or, uh, you know, uh, family members or something like that. And this is right. the place you say, meet us at the Spire meet of us Meeting. At the Spire of Meeting, exactly. But, well, this makes me wonder because, as again, the, 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 the thing that makes this so interesting is that, as we've seen, there are lots of outdoor spots. I mean, like, obviously the, uh, the Rudaurans just loved places like that, right? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, nice decorative gazebos with beautiful views out in the middle of nowhere where you could get together with friends and family and have picnics, right? That was clearly a thing. This is not that. Clearly uh-huh. not that. Um, I'm... We've got these pillars all around. I thought there was those were maybe braziers like that would burn and look cool at night or something, but it doesn't look like it. They're just kind no, of I random don't think pillars. So. Yeah. That's maybe it. you're supposed to like set up your campsite near here. Well, so here's my theory. My theory ah. is this is not an actual meeting place. It is not the spire of meeting in that sense. Oh. It is the spire of meeting in the sense of it is a landmark commemorating meeting. Oh, gotcha. Like, this is a place. The Gilgalad that, Memorial Spire. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. The, Gil- <laughs> the, 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 the Gilgalad Memorial Spire. Um, uh, yes. Now, I'm not saying you couldn't meet up here. You could. But it's clearly not designed to be a a hangout spot. But the it's the pillars, right? The way that the pillars are set around, it makes it look the whole thing like a sort of statue or like a, like a Rose. memorial. Yes, exactly. So I think this is a memorial. This is designed to... Um, <laughs> to commemorate Sorry. the armies I was of just the last looking, alliance. I was just looking at Boop. I was seeing Boopful suggestion that uh, uh, the stairs up to the upper floor there, as well as the chairs up here, uh, exist entirely in the other world. And so uh, cannot be seen. <laughs> Only an older can use this yeah, swear. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, I think that's a great suggestion. Um, <laughs> and this also, of course, gives us an explanation for any peculiarities of Elvish architecture. Like these columns, which appear to be standing in the middle of nowhere, are actually holding something up. We just can't. They're just, it's in the realm of the unseen. So, you know, we can't. A wizard we did it. <laughs> we can't see them. Um, anyway, but no, seriously. I think that this is a commemoration. So who, what meeting would it commemorate? It could be the last alliance, right? A Gilgalad oriented. Now you'd expect maybe a statue of Gilgalad here, of which there are plenty around. But there, yeah, we got plenty around here. here. So I would tend to think that it's less specific than that. That it doesn't commemorate. Remember, there's that place. Griffith went to it out in Eregion, I think, uh-huh. um, which is like specifically commemorating the last alliance, right? And we get Gilgalad and Elendil both, you know, lots of oh, statues yes. there. Um, uh, yeah, so um, this doesn't seem to be that, right? We would have a, at least a statue of Gilgalad if that's what this was. So I tend to think that if it's commemorating meeting in some sense, it's broader, Right. Think of what Rivendell is meant to be. Rivendell is meant to be a haven, right? A place where the elves come and lots of different kind of elves, right? Is it a place? This is more like for all free people. Yeah, for all free people and certainly for all free elves, especially for all free elves. Um, We don't have uh, communities of non-elves who live here Mm -hmm. in Rivendell. Um, But... um, but yeah, so a commemoration of the bringing together of, you know, the remnant of elves, like, you know, to create a home that is open to, um, you know, all of the elves remaining here in Middle-earth. Um, and so, yeah, belongs Monso. I don't know that it would mean the free peoples, but having the four stairs that come up from all four directions... The Noldoran, Sylvan, Sindarin, and right, right, maybe, Tulare. maybe, yeah, Tulare. <laughs> uh, that it would it, again just, just sort of show. Again, it's not that up here on this relatively small and re- and quite uncomfortable platform is where you would actually meet, but it's 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 again the symbol of meeting. Um, yeah, it's divided into four in the middle too, just like that that bit in the the states where they're all squares where they all meet at the corners. Yes, exactly. So that the four stairways come up the four lines cross in the center everything converges and meets in this one spot again i think this is symbolic i think it's not literal um so this isn't Mm -hmm. yes this isn't the spire of meeting in the sense of like you know like the uh pavilion you can rent at the state uh park uh to have your family (laughs) get-togethers and stuff um it is to commemorate the coming to the the coming together of the last of the elves in middle earth that's what I'm thinking. That's that's how I read yeah, the stuff yeah. of this, the, the spire, which is cool because I've only ever paid any attention to the spire of meeting when I've had to find a quest giver or receiver here. Uh, yeah, back when trainers were a thing. Well, I actually never played way back then. Trainers have been a strange and obsolescent curiosity to me ever since I began playing. But oh. um. But I know there's at least one point in the epic quest when there's somebody who appears at the Spire of Meeting that you have to talk to. Oh, yes. But somewhere in the book, I think. Yeah. 
I um, like any question involved reading a book. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Tormarthen, I don't think it's hobbits. I don't think that we get, um, this is, this is meant to be the free peoples. I think this is, it's meant to be meeting the elves. Okay. So this house that we ran past earlier on, this appears to be another one of those houses like the one further up the way. Very uh, another family. Similar to this. Yeah. So another kind of family home, um, by which I don't mean a like nuclear family, but another one of the houses of the elves. Well, this fellow doesn't have much to say, sadly. No, nor does he have much, nor, nor does his clothing have much to say. No. For a second, I was hoping that those were like snakes on his uh, little sash there, but I don't think they are. I think they're just squiggles. Yeah, and leaves on the hem. Yeah. Yeah, not seeing anything. Nope. You are super unhelpful. Apart from your hair color, uh-huh. which suggests that Mr. Town Person here is Noldor, probably? Yeah. Dark hair? Yeah. Yeah. Um. His name's probably Baron something. Yeah. Ooh, look at the cranes or egrets or whatever they are framing that window up there above. I don't remember seeing that. Yeah, that's new. And so is the sort of Venom Spider-Man thing on the door. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking at that. I don't what really know what that? to make of that. Is that a tree? It kind of looked like a fanged jack-o'-lantern. Yeah. Looks sort of creepy, honestly. Yeah, this is not a... It's an, it's an unusually harsh design. This is a house of a sad history. Yeah. And by harsh, I mean, like, look at all the pointy bits. Yeah, it's very dwarven and an elvish... Aesthetic. Yeah, very kind of thorny. Yeah. Interesting. Um. I don't. It's totally abstract. I don't know what to make of it. Yeah. There's no other clues out here either. It's just your typical building. It's just the door that's different. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of. Yep. I don't see anything else either, unless there's. Well, these sword things are kind of interesting. Was it? So we've got a Whoa. shield and... No, wait. I thought it was a sword, but no. I think the vertical line is part of the shield. And then, what is that? A spearhead up above? A diadem? Definitely looks very military. Hmm. Or an owl sitting on a branch. I don't know. Oh, I see the owl now. Okay. Right, this bit up here. Maybe. I don't think so. Maybe. Pretty abstract. Much more abstract than the shield, certainly. It does look more military. Yeah. It kind of, I mean, it looks like it could be a spearhead with, like, a cross guard beneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or sword and shield. Artfully layered. Yeah, sword was my first thought, but... That's interesting. It's definitely a leaf pattern of some kind. 
Yeah, I think they're definitely Noldor who live here. Uh, with the amount of uh, artistry and uh, just uh, the sheer dramatics of everything, I'd say Noldren. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. It's a house of craftsmen. Check that out. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Let us go. No, not this way. I don't want to go back what? to the stable master. I want to go ah. up the road. Stick to the path. Yeah, so I'm going to end up falling into the river if I'm not careful here. Again. Yeah, again. <laughs> okay. Oh, no, last time you just fell off a cliff, but not into the river. Yeah, I, thought, I, didn't, I haven't fallen into one of the rivers yet. Recently, yeah. Don't drink it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, oh, well, here's a... lights. Oh, here's a little house over here. These are Feanorian lamps? Yeah, maybe. On each side of the bridge? Interesting. Okay, so yeah, these guys are all over the place. Oh, this is a gazebo that has a top on it. That's another one. Of, it's like a... It's Ooh, probably oh, another yeah. spire. Oh, second story. Yeah, maybe. Maybe, it's like, maybe you're supposed to find the stairs in one of these columns. <laughs> but see, this is more like a gazebo. But again, this is not a real comfortable gazebo. It's got another one of these same little tables here. Yeah, I think this is for examining pottery. I think she gives you a pottery quest. Oh, does she? Yes. Or he, yeah, Glor this no, Gloren oh. Glir over here. I see. How about uh, uh, Meir, Meir, Meir Hiniath? Let's see. Uh, the outpost Gwingris is in need of experienced adventurers. I'll oh, see so just, just a vector to... send us places. Okay, just just a vector to Gwingris, huh? Okay. He's just going to send us places. He doesn't want us here. Right. Okay, that's right. It's just a very polite suggestion. You know, you know what might be hey, good get if out you of went down. somewhere very far away. Yeah, that would be good. Thanks, yeah. thanks for that. Well, this one wants us to rest here. Oh, she's a watcher. She's, she's a watcher. watching. She's watching the the entryway in on the stable side. Yes. Yes, that's the bridge we crossed over first. And yeah, she boy, if we had any see... question about keen elven eyes, you know. Right, because she could also be watching the path down from there, too. Because we can mm -hmm. see that pretty clearly uh, all the way up. And she was facing out that way before I spoke to her, and then she turned around. Did you travel far to come to the valley? Place of refuge. But I'm now really Rest cutting it. I'm really risking yeah. things here by... Yeah. Oh, there's a little house I'd never noticed of it before. It's right over here. Next to the market. I just found a statue I've never seen before. Which one's that? Uh, it looks like a statue of possibly Luthien dancing by the waterfall. Wait, uh, down the statue's by the waterfall? No, it's up on uh, the north wall toward the Misty Mountains. Um, oh. I had to ride in the long way because this character never unlocked anything, apparently. Ah. Um, and it's... On the Misty Mountain side is where it is? Yeah, it's to the 
east of the towers to the gates going up to the misty, the path up to the Misty Mountains to Kirith and Melidris. Mm-hmm. But it's just perched on... We can't get to it. It's just perched near a waterfall. Huh. Very strange. Well, t- well, we'll take a look at that when we make it back up there. We need to go visit Arwen at some point, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, no, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. All right. Well, this is a cute little door. Look at this. I know. It's little, adorable. Little, just as the other one was slightly off-putting, this is really cute. Yeah. Little door human, with, huh? with the hinges, right, and the handle. It's round and friendly. Yeah, yeah. The designs around the side are, are in, not, in a slightly similar style to the off-putting ones on the double door, but without but all the thorny bits. Yeah, exactly. Without yeah. the points and fang-like things and... Not to mention, Much of course, the, the you know just the small, simple door. Instead of yeah, the, the wood part door. looks kind of weathered. Yeah. So big. No, oh no, that's a rooftop. That is not a sidewalk. That is a rooftop. Where? Wow. Well, I was trying to go around the perimeter. Oh, there, right? Yes, look, that does look like that me. was a bad idea. Don't do that. Yeah, I won't do that. That looks like a one-way trip into the river. Yeah, you can wave at the watchers. You just glide by. This All looks right. less like a a major house because it's relatively small. Yeah, this looks oh, more like the house of some, someone. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's a modest size mansion it's not as opulent as some of the other ones but it is it's a big big old house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's waterside property too another one of these yeah gee you wonder if like there's an emergency and all these ladders come out from somewhere so they can get up there <laughs> maybe maybe valley's been breached fetch the ladders <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's getting late. Uh, yeah. We might have to. When, when a joke okay. about ladders is funny, it's time to time to call it a night. Okay, so here we have the marketplace, an active marketplace. With stuff for sale. Nothing particularly elven either. It's mostly. Yeah. It's same stuff you. Just get anywhere else. Huh. And that's interesting by itself. Um, just the whole concept of a marketplace. I mean, why not? Uh, you, you gotta get gotta get stuff. It gotta come from somewhere, or is it more of a? It's weird that there's currency here. Well. Let's think more. We'll we'll start at the marketplace next time. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, it's just kind of fun to see one of these gazebos being used, you know, and having merchandise <laughs> laid out in it. Um, yeah. But we'll we'll start here next time at the marketplace. I want to think about. I want to think more about what this marketplace suggests about the economy of Rivendell, as again yes. we've you know been talking about how. The layout of Rivendell gives, 
you know, the Lotro developers an opportunity to develop a, a kind of story, right? A kind of narrative background of, uh, of the elves in the third age of middle earth. Um, so why have they chosen to have a marketplace? So, and by the way, preemptively, let me just say, oh, they need to be able to have, you know, merchants for the players to interact with is not a good reason. Right, like you don't yeah. that you don't have to build a whole marketplace for that to happen. Um, we see that there are folks around the inside of the last homely house that um, uh, that have that. Right, we know that there are the forges where um, you know Enduro is going to be reforged and everything. You could just okay. have you know craftsmen that you could interact with there. You don't have to build this whole big, huge, elaborate marketplace in the middle of yeah. Rivendell for that, you know, just to give um, players, vendors to interact with. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, one, one, thing, one thing before we close that up. Okay. I do know that there are tasks in uh, the Trollshaws where you can collect certain kinds of skins of, um, right. you know, scales and stuff like that. And then take them to these guys and they will make you armor for free. Right. Right, like so the, that is something to like, consider. Wasn't there like a perfect lynx pelt or something that I once and and like got? a bear skin or something? Yeah, yeah, and then you can yes, yes, and they made it into a cape or something. Yes, yes. So that should be considered in weighing out their economy. Yep, yep. No, that's that is well remembered. Okay, all right. So we'll start here next time. Next time is two weeks from tonight. We will con- yep. we will conclude our discussion of. Uh, the other side, and then move into the next topic of conversation, and then we will uh, we will resume our field trip, our close examination of Rivendell here, um, and uh, uh, we'll start here in the marketplace and move up towards the forges uh, after that. And we're mostly done with Rivendell when we get up there. I think we've been almost everywhere else. Um, we might want to go down to that other area down in the south if we can make it through there. But anyway, all right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. See you guys in a fortnight. Uh, No class next week, but we'll be back the week after that. So thanks, everybody. Good night. See ya. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.